There's a poem, a few words, by Kabir. He says, the blue sky stretches out farther and farther. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forth with light when I sit firmly in that world. In meditation practice, we are endlessly encouraged to be with life, to be with each moment, just as it is. To learn how to be present, wholeheartedly present with all things, just as they are. We're encouraged to discover what is real and what is true, and to make peace with that to discover or to explore what it means to find a quality of harmony with the true nature of each moment. Let things be, learning how to let things be. This is the unwavering instruction as a way of finding simplicity and peace in each moment. And all, so much of the encouragement, so much of the guidance, the instructions, really can, in truth, be summed up in this one word, acceptance, and understanding what authentic acceptance actually is. It's not always easy for us to do. What does it mean to be able to accept? What does acceptance look like? Clearly, in our own experience, I think we begin to understand, understand that acceptance is really not born or of gaining or achieving. It, it's not so much born of heroic and strenuous effort to accept things. In fact, in the search for acceptance and in the search for peace, it's probably more true to say that in every day and in every moment, something is let go of. Acceptance is certainly not about pretending, you know, pretending everything is just wonderful. And it's not an idealized state. You know, sometimes I think we will finally reach this state of acceptance after a kind of lifetime of struggle. Acceptance is a practice. And it is a verb. It's a practice of wisdom and compassion, and it truly is a moment-to-moment practice. It is about learning to be at peace with all things in all moments, and more about coming to know very deeply an enduring place of peace inwardly. Acceptance is learning or understanding really what it does mean to rest in loving kindness and compassion in our own hearts and minds. And the way in which loving kindness and compassion within ourselves liberates us from anxiety and from struggle. And about how learning to rest in loving kindness and compassion in ourselves equally liberates the world, the events in our world, 
the people in our lives to be seen fully for who and what they are. That liberation from demand, from image, from conclusion, from judgment, from anxiety, we probably might say is really the first step in bringing about change and transformation, both inwardly and outwardly. To learn about acceptance is to take a journey. In each moment and in each encounter, it's very often a journey that we take from delusion or illusion to simple truth. It's a journey we take from all our stories about the world and about ourselves and other people to again the simple truth of each moment. It's also a journey that we do learn to take from anxiety and struggle to serenity and balance and compassion. Each time we make that journey, there is a letting go. And, and there is, it seems, a, a price for us to pay. It seems in making that journey to what is, to the simple truth of each moment, we are often very much asked to lay down our accumulation, our burden of fear, of should, of expectations. Sometimes we're asked to let go of some of our historical resentments and images and our, our pet aversions. And sometimes, you know, we would think, you know, logically, rationally, perhaps we would think, of course, you know, wonderful, you know, lay all that down. And in truth, sometimes we hold very tenaciously to all of that. We are sometimes not so happy to let go of our images, our, our pet aversions, our historical resentments, and our story. It seems perhaps a huge demand to be able to let go of so much of this. And it may be. But more and more we see in our life that letting go is not nearly as demanding or as costly as holding on to all of those fears and stories and resistances. Sometimes I think it's, it's worth just taking a moment to reflect on how our lives would be, how we would be if we were able to somehow put down the burden of our anxieties and fears and images and resentments. To reflect on how, how our lives would be if we were able to live in a way in which the past was not always being superimposed upon the present. If we look at that very directly, you know, does it look like suffering? Does it look like misery and conflict? Or does it perhaps look more like freedom and peace? It is true that the simple realities, the simple truths of each moment are not always easy for us to open to. There are great tragedies, terrible events that happen, are happening in our world. It's not always easy to open to the reality of 
of change and loss and, and being saved for things that are difficult and unpleasant. The thoughts, the feelings, the physical experiences we sometimes encounter. It, it's not easy for us to open to the reality or simply to make peace of the reality that sometimes we don't get what we want in our bodies, in our minds, in our emotions and that the world and other people are very often actually not obedient to our expectations and our wishes and our desires. It's not easy to open to or to embrace these realities but I really feel actually that we are harmed far less by the simple truth of each moment than by holding and cherishing and clinging to all of our ideas, you know, of how things should be, how the world should be, how we should be, how other people should be. What is it? You know that we are really asked to accept in our quest or our search for peace and for freedom. Certainly we are asked to accept the changing circumstances of our lives and that sometimes our life just does not work out the way that we had hoped. Sometimes we're disappointed, we're disillusioned. And we're disappointed sometimes that we can't force events and circumstances and people to somehow conform to our idea of how they should be. Change and unpredictability and uncertainty, a life without guarantee. This is a reality we all share. And this is what we're asked to accept and to embrace. We're asked to accept the people who are part of our lives, the shadow of those from the past who may have hurt us in some way and linger in our hearts. We're asked to accept the people in our present that we may struggle with, and most of us really do have one or two of those companions in our lives that somehow it's not so easy for us to divorce ourselves from. We're also asked to even accept the people that we love who aren't perfect. And above all, we are asked to accept and to embrace ourselves, our simple truth and reality. And this is actually quite a challenge, to accept our past, the things that we've done and undone and left undone. Sometimes the things that we've done that we regret or feel guilty about. We're asked to accept the ways in which we may have been wounded or hurt by others. And that means accepting our present too. All of it. Part of us would like actually to rather ignore or deny often parts of ourselves. You know, our demons, our obsessions, our stickiness, you know, our resentment. <coughs> to accept ourselves in this moment without reservations, without conditions, 
It truly is a training ground for finding peace and freedom in every area of our lives. <coughs> because think of what happens when we do experience what happens. When we're not able to embrace the simple truth of the moment. And we see the habits of rejection, of condemnation, of judgment. How they spill out from our inner relationships into so many of the encounters and relationships in our lives. Making it difficult to make peace with all things. It seems that without that wholehearted acceptance of ourselves in the present, the future somehow is shadowed by the past. And our present continues to be almost a reenactment of the drama of the past. Learning to be present with what is somehow ends that continuity that we don't always need to drag the past into the present and into the future. That somehow we're able to lay down this burden of, of, of wrongness, of guilt, of shame, of regret, to let go of what has gone by. This is really a huge challenge. You know, once when the Buddha was asked, you know, why are your monks and nuns so radiant? And he answered, it is because they have let go of what has already passed. Because they don't long for what is yet to come. Because they are insatiably clear in the present. This is why they are radiant. Fields translated it in a different way. He said, out beyond the ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the heart lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other, make no sense. Acceptance and self-acceptance, it is a powerful gift. It is also a great invitation and challenge. And I often think that it's a journey we're really not so well trained in in our culture. I often was struck by this when I was practicing in Asia, you know, and in monasteries often where there would be a mixture of Asian students and Western students, you know, and we would go for group interviews, you know. And the teacher would say, okay, you know, how's your meditation coming? And most often not, you know, us group of Westerners, well, we could hardly wait to begin, you know, with our litany of complaints about everything that was wrong with us, you know, and everything that we needed to work on and get over and, you know, how we weren't making any progress, you know, and, you know, how our, our personal duty, you know. And, and then it would come around, you know, then, then he would pass on, to, you know, to one of the Asian students, and they'd say, okay, how's your practice going? And so often, you know, they would say, oh, everything is just fine, you know, things are rising and passing, you know, I'm present, you know. And often you'd see this look on our faces, you know, these Western faces, you know, it's sort of things like, and you think they've got the same mind, you know, they've got the same kind of emotional spectrum. They seem to be often living in this other dimension, you know, of, of kind of serenity, where our, our dimension seems to be one of these, you know, uphill tasks, you know, these heroic journeys we were making to become perfect, actually. 
this was often the heroic journey we were making, was to become perfect. And I think we are not culturally so well trained in learning to be with what is. In fact, sometimes I feel more we're culturally trained in a way in which non-existence or struggle is the norm. Sometimes it seems that we almost internalize a culture of non-acceptance. And the, the standards and the values of that internalized culture one of them is, is the belief, perhaps, that we need to strive, we, we need to make heroic efforts in order to become acceptable, in order to become lovable and perfect, or perhaps the belief that we must earn or win acceptance by virtue of our efforts, you know, to fit in with particular models and standards of perfection. And actually, this is often a very powerful mythology that we carry within us. Of course, none of us, uh, well, at least I, have actually never met this perfect person who is perfectly lovable, you know, perfect in all ways and in all moments, who makes no errors. And yet somehow it, it's almost a kind of collective illusion or dream that we feel almost vanished from questioning. How can judgment exist without an image of perfection? This is a kind of koan to carry with us when we find ourselves being judgmental, being self-judgmental. What is the condition for that to arise? It is an image of how things should be. It's a kind of, when we internalize these, I think, these models of perfection, it's also a sort of collective unhappiness where we, we strive heroically together to become perfect. Driven by fear, by shadows and anxiety, personal shadows of fear of failure. The perfect body, the perfect mind, the perfect relationship, the perfect partner, the perfect lifestyle, and the perfect meditation. If we don't inherit the images, we construct them for ourselves. Sometimes they are delivered to us, and they deliver a kind of twisted thinking that freedom or peace somehow depends upon becoming perfect. And what is the companion to that belief? How do we respond when things are, when we are often actually facing imperfection? One of our responses to what we would deem to be imperfect and therefore wrong is anxiety. Anxiety is actually the nature, I think. It's, it's, it's the, the feeling thing of non-acceptance. The anxiety about not being good enough, not beautiful, being beautiful enough, not being a good enough meditator, not fitting in. Uh, the anxiety of being found to be lacking, being criticized, being rejected, being condemned. It's, you know, anxiety can pretty much pervade our lives. Christian mystic once said, you know, anxiety is always with us. It is only sleeping. 
you know, we see those moments when it's not sleeping and it wakes up and we feel it often in the face or with accompanying our fear of rejection. One of the clear consequences of feeling that anxiety inwardly and a lack of self-acceptance tends to be a kind of surrender of authority where we delegate authority to others or to images or to beliefs or to opinions who seem to possess these valid standards of perfection that we measure ourselves by. I think in relationship with the world, you know, we feel this curious paradox of craving and yearning for approval and affirmation, while often actually not believing it when it comes. You know, we just are not convinced. No matter how much someone tells us, you know, how lovable, how wonderful, how terrific we are, there's a part of us that's still waiting to be found out, you know, that this is actually not true. Sometimes when we're anxious, we want to control things, of course. We want to control the world and other people and ourselves as a way of protecting ourselves. We don't want to make mistakes, of course, make ourselves vulnerable to criticism and rejection. And of course, one can feel control as attention. The background voice that it carries with us, always measuring, you know, that vocabulary of control and the inner critic of good and bad and right and wrong and better and worse. It's a huge vocabulary. And truly it's very difficult to let anything at all be in that tension. Sometimes it seems like our own intrinsic capacity for kindness and compassion is submerged in the fearful mind. But our capacity for trust and intimacy is submerged in the fearful mind. Often when we're trying to control, you know, there is this kind of background sense of living in a world of what if. You know, what if I'm disapproved of? What if I'm a terrible meditator and everybody knows I'm a failure? What if I'm hurt? Fear grows with what if. And also a sense of disconnection. We can feel it as a kind of selfing, you know, making this self so predominant in the world and all the self-consciousness that comes. There's a Zen line that says, for others to approve of me of E is easy. For me to approve of myself is hard. Personally, I don't really think it's that hard to win approval in this world. I mean, if you're kind of nice, you know, and you sit in and you kind of say the things that people like to hear, and, and you don't challenge too many people and you sort of do, don't disagree and make an effort to be who other people want you to be, you get lots of approval. It's really not that hard. And it's not the same as, as acceptance. I often think of approval as being a kind of empty refrigerator syndrome. You know, it's like if you're really hungry, and you've got your eyes set on getting into the refrigerator. And you get there, you know, after much heroic effort, and you open it, and it's empty. You know, and to me, the approval has that same kind of impact. 
is like it never really satisfies us. It never really soothes or releases us from that inner anxiety. We never have enough approval to heal underlying anxiety. Our deeper fears of being somehow abandoned or isolated or alone. To approve of ourselves is really much harder because we really need to find another vocabulary different than right and wrong and good and bad and success and failure. We really do need to find a vocabulary of compassion that we only find within ourselves. It doesn't mean that the old vocabulary just disappears, it's a habit. It makes its appearance. But we can learn to believe in it a little bit less. And you probably heard that line, right? says, I may not be perfect, but parts of me are truly excellent. This is something to live with. You know, I may not be perfect, but parts of me are truly excellent. What is it that we are really asked to find that compassion for? I mean, in one way, we all live in the same world. You know, we all have thoughts, feelings, encounters with the world, sights, sounds, sensations. This is universal, it's, it's common to all of us. Our response to all of that, of course, is actually what creates our individual universe, our personal universe. This is where we bring mindfulness, into our response. Perhaps we begin to question whether we actually always need to define ourselves by the contents of our mind. I, I feel like this is such a major mindfulness lesson. The contents of our mind, much of it, to be honest, you didn't invite, did you? You know, think of today, how much you invited. And how much did you consciously choose to think the thoughts you had today? Maybe two or three, or you know, maybe even ten of them. The rest of them, they just seem to come, just get quite uninvited. You didn't choose to think them. They appear. Some of them are really habitual. They're, they're the kind of long lineage. And yet we often really take so, so personally, so seriously, the thoughts that appear. And so we find ourselves defining ourselves by the contents of our mind, you know? A thought of anger comes, a thought of sadness comes, a thought of anxiety comes, a, a plan comes, an image comes. And we find ourselves bouncing through the day, you know? I'm like this, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm fearful, I'm anxious, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, I'm elated, da, 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 da. We find ourselves taking on the shape of whatever appears in our mind simply because of the identification, the clinging with it. And then truly it feels like we have no refuge inwardly because we don't know what's coming next. And we are not actually helpless in the face of that movement of clinging. It is such a fragile and such an uncertain way to live to always define ourselves by the contents of our mind. And it may not be true. This is, you know, it seems so true in one moment, doesn't it? I mean, you can feel quite excited and wonderful and, you know, filled with loving kindness at breakfast. 
by lunchtime there's total amnesia about that experience, you know, you're depressed, you're angry, you're uptight, and now I miss. And it's such a fragile way to live, as if you're somehow just kind of buffeted by these unchosen thoughts that arise. And it is so unnecessary. We can, it's not, you know, certainly it's somewhat amazing how many thoughts we can have in a day, but far more amazing is the degree of authority to which we give to those thoughts. To determine our well-being and to govern our understanding of who we are. This is where we can introduce mindfulness. That we don't actually have to be so bound to that identification, that clinging, which immediately brings with it the judgments, the right, the wrong, the good, the bad, the success, the failure, which immediately brings with it the tension. And we don't actually have to be governed by that. We are introducing another condition of mindfulness, which really allows almost a culture of creative disbelief. Not rejection, not denial, but a culture of creative disbelief is much more in a culture of investigating, of questioning, is this true? You know, instead of saying I am, we say am I? Instead of saying you are, we say are you? We learn to probe all of that a little bit. And we learn actually to let go of some of that self-consciousness, the, the separateness, the tension, the incredible burden of believing in all of these changing identities. And it truly is a burden. That we keep trying to control, that often makes us feel ashamed and often divorces us from the simple truth of the moment. You know, if you can imagine, you know, the example of, you know, dining rooms on re at retreat centres. I think often for many people a kind of charged situation. You know, they feel self-conscious, you know, they wonder if they're eating mindfully enough or who's looking at them or have they taken too much food and does everybody notice? You know, they, it tends to be a bit of a stress for some people. And things often go wrong in the dining room. You know, they really do. It, it doesn't just happen to you. Things often go wrong in the dining room. And someone told me once, you know, about the experience of lining up, you know, as mindfully as they possibly could for lunch, you know, super mindfulness. Only to, as you know, they were trying to juggle their spoon and their plate and their salad bowl and all these things that you try and juggle in the dining room. They dropped their salad on the floor. And it's an immediately experience, you know, this whole raft of shame. You know, everybody is looking at me, you know, they will all know, you know, incredibly unmindful I am, and I'm the only one who dropped their salad. Everybody else is successful in juggling all these things except me. This is so much like everything in my life, you know. I've heard, you know, the whole story comes. And it feels kind of like the end of the world, you know, really the end of the world. It's, the world is just, you know, dissolved in that moment. It's really not true, is it? It is just a drop salad in the dining room. That's all it is. It's not some personal 
failure, disaster, fiasco. We try to control the feelings, the sensations, the thoughts, the images that arise because we're f- afraid of being overwhelmed. You know, we're afraid that if somehow we don't control them, we will be submerged by them. But that trying to control something makes a sense of separation and invest whatever we are trying to control with greater and greater authority. It becomes something to fear rather than something to listen to, to be present with. Wendell Berry in a poem of his, he said, I go amongst the trees and sit still, and all my stirring becomes quiet around me, like circles on water. My tasks lie in their place where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes, I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. We can actually learn to listen to the song of many things, including our own hearts and minds and bodies. So we can accept, we can let go of control, we discover we're not out of control, we can let things be, we discover there's a great relief in not having to be perfect. We discover that it opens up a kind of spaciousness, a kindness and wisdom in which everything can be received and released. Another of the mechanisms of non-acceptance is actually aversion, resistance. The song of non-acceptance, we hear it so many times in the judgment. That we sing over and over, you know, we have so much it seems to say about other people, how they look and act and dress and hear. We have a lot to say about the world. You know, if you found yourself in walking meditations here, you know, if you come across that key called constant comment, and we have an inner voice, the constant commentator, you know, that has so much to say, doesn't it? Endless, you know, redesigning the landscape of the garden, you know, categorizing the flowers, the trees, the preferences, and we have so much to say about ourselves. You know, it does seem at times that the inner critic rarely takes a break. Jung once said that the most terrifying thing is to accept ourselves completely. And we wonder why that might be. Because to accept ourselves completely, it means that we have to find some new pathways and some new guidelines. We might have to forsake the image and the idea of perfection and look for another way of being. Instead of asking ourselves what it takes to be perfect, we might ask ourselves what we need to let go of to be free. Both wisdom and compassion really do teach us the futility of judgment. In fact, our whole life teaches us the futility of judgment. 
the way it's a kind of passive vandalism of our consciousness that really alters and changes nothing at all. That's the amazing thing, that we can spend so much time doing something that actually produces so little. Hmm? Because judgment changes nothing at all. We can scold and blame and condemn and shout all the shoulds of how I and the world should be, and not one single thing changes as a result of it. That's amazing. Transformation is not a result. What is the result is more contractedness, more distance, and it's so tiring. You know, it's so tiring. You know, and this is actually not just a good theory, you know, instead of really encouraging people gently, you know, to let go of the judge, to let go of the critic, sometimes I think it would be a better instruction in retreats to encourage people to really take one fully dedicated hour of judgment, you know, to go through every single condemnation and judgment and terrible thing you have ever thought about yourself and really get into it, you know, really engage with it, you know, be, be vehement about it, you know, be passionate with it, you know, have a really good session of self-condemnation. And then at the end of it, see how you feel. You know, I mean, do you feel more refreshed, you know, more enlightened, more liberated, more, you know, more open, more spacious, you know, do you come out feeling energized, ready to greet the world, you know, and all things in it? Maybe, they're rare, person would. But mostly we would come out totally exhausted, wearied, kind of eroded inwardly, bereft of confidence. And yet somehow we don't quite believe that. You know, we don't quite actually make the connection between rejection and condemnation and resistance and the effect and the implications <coughs> that it has on our consciousness. So sometimes, you know, it might be an idea, you know, to try an hour. Why is it more terrifying to accept ourselves? Well, I think part of it is, is the search for perfection really can give a lot of meaning to our life. You know, it gives us a lot to do. It's a project without end, isn't it? You know, all the tasks we have to work on, all the things we have to improve in ourselves, all the ways that we can occupy ourselves endlessly, striving for and getting rid of, and all provide a certain sustenance, a certain nourishment, of course, for me, with a sense of self we are so desperate to hold to. The rewards of improvement, of course, look somewhat enticing, you know, approval and belonging and being someone special, uh, being admired, and freedom's a very different journey. And sometimes I think set against this inner culture of, of addiction to perfection and begotten becoming, even the possibility of freedom maybe gives us a glimpse of a of a kind of existential anxiety. I mean, who would we be if we weren't busy improving ourselves? Who would we be if we weren't becoming someone special? Who would we be if we weren't occupied with getting rid of things or getting things? Sometimes, you know, we, you know, what would we do without all the things we have to work on? 
I think, you know, we have these terrible visions that come with that, you know, that we're going to kind of sink into this swamp of passivity, you know, become a, a bag lady or, you know, <coughs> someone is kind of, you know, just adrift and walked on in this life. It may not be true. It may not be true. Often we, we don't want to let go of, of the striving for perfection because we doubt ourselves too much. You know, we think, I can't be free because of all of my imperfections and my history and my shortcomings. And, you know, later, after I've modified and fixed myself, then I'm going to be free. But it's like a little bit like being in a prison, in a prison, you know, and, and, and kind of redecorating the walls all the time. It's, it's still a prison. To be mindful, I think, really to discover freedom. It's an invitation, really, to look very clearly at ourselves and our lives and the people who we relate to, and especially to look most clearly at those places that we most fiercely resist and judge, that we have the most fierce aversion for, the least acceptance. Because these places where we feel the most resistance, the most aversion, they actually show us the places where we're the least free and the most imprisoned. To be really willing to turn directly towards what we most fiercely reject is probably the fastest way to find transformation. It's probably the fastest way to find acceptance and freedom in ourselves and in our lives. To look sometimes at, at our habits of, of an addiction to obsession, you know, to, to dwelling, to, to resentment. Look at some of the closed rooms in our hearts and minds. Do they really deserve judgment? Or do they actually deserve more compassion, more allowing, more openness? We discover in this life, actually, that we often underestimate our capacity for spaciousness and for embracing all things that we can embrace the people we most fear and reject, who have been made the most frozen through judgment. Sometimes we underestimate our capacity to open to ourselves, to embrace who we are, and without being submerged or overwhelmed. Our practice of mindfulness is really a teaching in confidence. Each time we return to the present, take our seat in mindfulness, take our seat in the present, it is a gesture of confidence that deepens confidence. We are learning in that moment to include justice, justice. We're learning to simplify and to make peace with justice. And each time we do that, each time we make that step to take our seat in mindfulness, it's also a gesture of freedom. We do discover that we can make peace with all things. Being with what is, the simple truth of each moment, the difficult, the easy, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the universe, sound, sight, attack, the people love, we love, the people we struggle with. None of these are actually an obstacle to freedom or to peace. 
learning to be with those simple truths, learning to be intimate with what is in each moment, is also learning to be still, to include and to be fearless in our life. Let's take a moment quietly together. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.